Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 27 minutes to 10 o'clock and our lines are open for you. 021-446-0567-011-8830702. This is when we all get to be clever. Well, at least after the show or after the Naked Scientist has given us our answer. Then we are cleverer than what, what we were. Good morning to you, Chris. How are you doing? Hello, Reedy. I'm very good, thank you. Lovely. You? I'm very well, thank you. Now, here's something that I am so desperate to get an answer to. We have IVF conducted on humans, and now scientists trying to make first laboratory hamburger. Is that another form <laughs> of IVF? Well, it's also dubbed in vitro meat. Uh, this is the whole idea of rather than having to use an animal to make meat for you and then you consume the animal, mm. why don't you take the cells that the animal would use to make meat, in other words, muscle, grow those muscle cells in a dish so that they then produce the same stuff as they would in an animal but without producing enormous amounts of methane, taking up space, being sort of demanding in terms of being re- or needing to be looked after. Why don't you get a, a lab dish to do it for you? So, for a long time, scientists have been trying to make in vitro meat and stuff that actually tastes any good. Mm-hmm. This week, they say they've made a step forward. I'm not sure they really have because the price tag is two million rand for one burger, which mm-hmm. is quite hard to swallow. <laughs> and so, so, I'm not sure how close we are really to realizing this goal, but it's not an unreasonable one. You know, if you look at um, what keeping animals does for the Earth, there are probably two or three times as many animals in terms of mass on Earth as there are people. And this means that animals probably directly contribute to about 20% of the carbon dioxide that humans, in the course of going about our lives, contribute to the world every year. Mm. So one physicist I know who did a a few back-of-the-envelope calculations said, well, the whole world could actually cut its carbon dioxide output literally overnight if we all went vegetarian. Um, based on the fact that when we uh, look at what the average person eats, mm-hmm. we all eat roughly our own weight in animal meat on an annual basis. And if you live in South Africa, we have amazing steaks, then it's probably double your own uh, weight than you was <laughs> when, I was over the, uh, when I was over last, last summer. Well, so, I mean, that's the bottom line, that we're, we're talking about trying to grow meat in a dish, and scientists are getting closer to being able to isolate the stem cells, expand them up, and make them make muscle in a dish. Mm-hmm. It, it's not particularly good quality stuff, though, I, I will say that. And it's also still a bit of a lie, because although the cells make muscle, uh, and it's got the right texture, and it's got the right nutritional constituents in it, it needs flavouring up, and you have to add flavours and other bits and pieces to make it look half decent and taste half decent, so mm. I think I'll just stick to the real thing, to be quite frank. Here's a little quiz for you, though. Yeah? Um, uh, if you are interested in, in ethical eating, so many vegetarians are vegetarian because they have regard for the welfare of the animals that they decide not to eat, what is currently, this hamburger aside, the one form of meat that a vegetarian can legitimately eat without it doing anyone ah. any harm? Ah. Thank you very much, Chris. You've given us a topic. We'll discuss that after you leave us. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe I'd everyone love, could speculate during the show. So when, when people come up with other hear. questions, we can quiz them back. What, what is the form of meat that uh, a vegetarian can legitimately eat and no, no animal has suffered?
Yeah, absolutely. Because the the whole philosophy or, or or reason for the lifestyle and for the choice is precisely because of how the animals are treated and how they're killed, how they're prepared, all of that. So if that is removed, would vegetarians then go on to eat uh, uh, to eat meat? That would no, be that there is a very real example of a meat tissue that a vegetarian can eat, and no animal has suffered in its production. Hmm. Okay, I'm writing all of this down. I think it's going to make for a very <laughs> interesting... Well, see what people suggest. Yeah, it's going to make for a very, very interesting uh, conversation. I'll give you feedback. I'm just thinking about, uh, when you were talking about the steaks in Johannesburg, I thought you were going to mention something about Thomas's steak, but I see you've spared him. I wonder how he no, would No, I, I always rib <laughs> Thomas, boom about his uh, prodigious <laughs> ability to eat. It's quite funny, because when I was uh, over previously... And Thomas very kindly got up at three o'clock in the morning so that I could come in and, and use a studio at 7.02 because the BBC wanted me to do something for them. And I said to Thomas, I will pay you back by taking you out to dinner. And one of the other people at 7.02 uh, took me aside later and said, Chris, be very careful. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, have you seen how much Thomas can eat? <laughs> and then we did go out to dinner uh, when, when I was over last July. And yeah, you're right. He can, he can eat a lot. <laughs> 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 Do you remember the guy turned up from the kitchen, uh, and and he showed Thomas the actual thing he'd ordered in in a bag, and he said, "Do you really want me to cook this?" And Thomas said, "Yeah." <laughs> and when it turned up, it was on two plates. <laughs> I've never seen anyone eat that much. It was amazing. It, it was worth it was worth paying for it just to see. <laughs> Oh, I'd forgotten that they actually came out from the kitchen to show him <laughs> they how could big not it believe was. This, this guy, who is the, the size and stature of Thomas, and he is a sort of, he is an obesity study miracle because this guy can put it away like there's no tomorrow and he doesn't seem to ever gain weight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, memories, memories. All right, let's go straight to the lines. Paul in Boxburg, hi. Hi, really, hi, Chris, how are you? Mm, we're fine, thank you, Paul. Your question? Hi, Paul. Good. I'd just like to find out... Um, so now I had a plate of food that was sitting outside in the garden and there were ants on it. Then I moved that plate to the kitchen where there was another, say, ant colony under the floorboards or whatever. Would those ants be assimilated into that colony or would they try to find their way back or would they just die of lonely ants wandering around? Hello, Paul. It depends is the answer. I've asked a lady who works on this. She was based in Sheffield. I think she's now in Bristol. Her name is Elva Robinson. So she's a UK ant scientist. And she has done a lot of work on how these insects lay down chemical signals that they follow to find food and find their way back to their nest. And also how they recognise each other. Now some ant species form big distributed colonies. So a few of them will sort of spawn off from the home colony and form a new colony somewhere but they're still very very closely related to the original colony so they could all be regarded as one super colony mm -hmm. other ants are um, exist in their own distributed and unique colonies and they defend that very very fiercely so if you take an ant from somewhere else and put it into one of these other colonies they'll fight it off how do they do that well in the last five years or so scientists have published various papers on this showing that uh, ants have on their surface things called cuticular hydrocarbons or chbs this is effectively ant bio they they produce these chemicals which they end up uh, sort of squidging all over their body surfaces and when one ant meets another you'll see mm. that they very briefly brush their antennae yes. against each other and their antennae are like their noses 
they're endowed with chemical receptors. Um, what they're effectively doing is sampling each other's cuticular hydrocarbon profile, and ants that are all related to each other will have the same genes that are making them make this particular cocktail in the particular proportions they do of these cuticular hydrocarbons. Ants which are not related will have a different profile, and they control how sensitive their antennae are to their own smells, so they can pick up an invader or a foreigner very quickly, and they will, uh, they will attack them. Mm -hmm, very interesting. I was wondering what they were doing as they stopped and touched each other. I thought they were communicating that, hey, mate, there's food where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes they are, but they are effectively policing each other because then they can pick up interlopers and that way they can uh, attack them and deal with them before they have a chance to get into the colony and spread disease. Or They, they also look at their own because... Uh, one of the things that ants do fall prey to are various fungal diseases and they, when they're infected with various fungi, the fungi want to end up with the ant taking a bit of the fungus back to the nest and then infecting all the other ants where the fungus can then spread. And the ants that are infected have a very characteristic smell and mm -hmm. so one of the things that a, an ant colony will do is post guards at the entrances to their nest and they will inspect the ants uh, that are coming back and any that smell a bit iffy then they'll deal with them. Mm. Okay, let's go to Tabo in Randburg. Hi there, Tabo. Good morning, Radia. Good morning, Chris. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to find out, my mother has developed something called a spontaneous CSF leak, a cerebrospinal fluid leak. It's a sort of a, a continuous dribbling of a clear liquid on one of her nostrils. And I just need to understand what causes this and how does it get stopped? Is it an expensive operation to stop it? Okay, so Hello, Tabo. Well, what's happened in the head, inside your skull, you have your brain, obviously, and the brain has a consistency of blancmange. If you move it and prod it, it's very squidgy. And to stabilise that structure, it's actually suspended in a solution of a sweet liquid, a sweet, salty liquid called cerebrospinal fluid, which is produced by blood vessels on the inside of the brain, and the fluid comes out through various channels from the inside of the brain to bathe the brain around the outside, and it's kept in balance because you make as much of that fluid as you reabsorb through the layers surrounding the brain, the meninges. So this keeps the volume about constant, and you have... I, I don't know, so there's not very much of this fluid. It's li literally less than 20 or 30 millilitres, I think, in the entire nervous system. It's not huge. Mm -hmm. and, or maybe 100, 120 mils. So it's, a, it's actually a relatively small amount. But it's kept inside these membranes, the meninges. If something breaches the meninges and connects the internal cavity to the outside world, then the fluid can come out. This is obviously a major infection risk if this happens, so you have to be a bit careful. But people who have things like chronic infections, and we often see this with individuals who have ear infections, sometimes the ear infection can be very bad and it can actually make a hole through the bone and then into the cerebrospinal fluid space, the subarachnoid space, and the fluid can, can leach out that way. Sometimes trauma can do it, so if someone has a bad head injury and this causes a fracture in the bone, that can do it. And there are various other um, bone eroding and bone damaging disorders which can cause a breach in the bone and then attack the meninges and allow the fluid to come out. They can fix it uh, mm. by, by doing a sort of patching pr procedure. What you do is get some uh, tissue which you can then identify where the breach is and you can apply the tissue over the hole and this will prevent the CSF coming up, but more important, it will also close that breach because you don't want bacteria and other infection to track into your subarachnoid space because you could get meningitis. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Good luck to you, Tabo. But is, is it is it fairly complicated, or is, is it something that she 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 must learn to to live with, or if it can be fixed, should they attempt that uh, with the risks of of developing other other problems in future? Well, the cause will defe- well the the cure will depend very much on the cause. So it's very hard for me to say whether oh. it would be trivial trivial or or hard to fix. But the bottom line is this is not trivial ever, and so it does need a skilled neurosurgeon to help put that right. Um, so it, it won't be simple to fix, but something, some examples of this will be much more simple to fix than others. Mm. Okay. Robbie Cliff, I see your calls. We'll be taking them right after this. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Let's go to Cliff. Cliff in Randburg. Hi. Hi. Morning, Reedy. Mm. Uh, I'd like to ask Chris a very, very uh, simple but maybe complicated question. Look, you travel abroad to various countries. You find that you've got different species of birds, animals, and whatever, whatever. And yet, all the flies seems to be exactly the same. Okay. Is, there, is there an explanation to that? We're getting a lot of questions about <laughs> flies. <laughs> Go for well, it, they're Chris. equivalently annoying, aren't they? <laughs> I'll grant you that. Um, th- there are definitely regional variations in the type of flies that you get. Uh, there are many species of mosquito, despite the fact that people tend to talk generically about mosquitoes, for example. There are lots of different species of mosquito, and there are some that exist more and more commonly in some geographies than in other geographies. So there's definitely a regional variation there. There are some species that fortunately don't exist in some bits of the world and do exist in others, but because they're flying insects and because of climate change, they are moving. So we used to have malaria in Britain, and after the First World War, there was, again, a reintroduction of malaria in the bottom half of Britain because of lots of people coming back with malaria. It eventually died out. With global warming, we may see a situation whereby the the mosquitoes that will sustain malaria could lead to it circulating again in places like Britain. So there are lots and lots of variations of these insects around the world. Um, it's not as maybe simple as, as your eyes may be fooling you into thinking because you're tending to see the ones that, that you recognise. There are lots of other insects there and, and flies that, that you don't, that mm-hmm. don't exist anywhere else. Yo. France at the University of Pretoria. Hi. Uh, hi, dear. How are you? Fine, thank you. My English is so poor. I'm it's not okay. friend, but I hope the night can say okay. will understand. Um, what makes it a beer to normally freeze when you remove it from the refrigerator or freezer when you hold it right in its belly, the, um, the, the, the metal? Okay, hold on. So it, you've put the, the, the bottle, the beer in the freezer? Yes. Okay. And when you remove it and hold it right on its yeah, metal, in the middle, yeah. it automatically freezes. What is the cause of that? Hello, Franz. Um, the reason for this probably is that when the beer is in the freezer or in the fridge and getting very, very cold, because it's not moving around, it becomes super cooled. And when you take the bottle out of the freeze, freezer or fridge, you disturb the liquid and you bring the liquid into contact with a small imperfection or maybe a tiny ice crystal on the glass because the glass at the top of the bottle, which doesn't have any beer next to it to start with, may end up at a much lower temperature than the bit of the bottle which has got the beer in it. And therefore there might be a tiny ice crystal there. And once the liquid, which is already cold enough to begin freezing, touches that ice crystal, the ice crystal does what's called nucleation and it triggers the formation of of a host of new crystals because it's much easier to form ice crystals once there's already something for the crystals to form on. 
then you get uh, a self-fulfilling prophecy because you've then got lots of ice crystals which can make more ice crystals and the whole beer will freeze from top to bottom very quickly just by you disturbing it. There's a similar experiment you can do which we wrote in our book, Maverick Science, where if you get a bottle of fizzy drink, like lemonade works quite well, and you put this in your freezer, if you get the liquid temperature down to about minus 5 or minus 6 degrees, which because there's lots of gas, CO2, that makes it fizzy, and also sugar dissolved in it, it will stay liquid at about minus 5 or minus 6. If you then take the top off the bottle and let the gas out, it will freeze instantly from the top right down to the bottom, literally in about 15 to 20 seconds, and you'll have a whole bottle of ice rather than a bottle of liquid. Mm -hmm. And there's probably the similar thing going on. When you let the gas out, the fizz, the pssst, that happens, make some bubbles, the bubbles bring the liquid into contact with some ice crystals or make a, a disturbance which enables ice to form at the top of the liquid and it starts the freezing process. Also, when you lose CO2, the gas from the dissolved, or the dissolved gas from the drink, because it comes out when it bubbles out, you are losing from the liquid a dissolved solute and when you add something like sugar or salt to a liquid you lower the freezing point so if you remove the solute the co2 then the freezing point must come up and you end up with the freezing point being higher than the temperature of the liquid so it freezes mm. oh, it's very striking if you yeah. have a go at doing it thank you very much france what an observation okay chris to the question about uh, the one meat that vegetarians may eat we, we have so many people are smsing somebody says eggs somebody else says uh, meat from animals that have died of old age there's no cruelty there <laughs> and then how is good, this good one answer. i hope it doesn't spoil your appetite it says human flesh the well they're, they're on the right lines almost got it it's definitely human the thing i'm thinking of uh. <laughs> close <laughs> Are they close? Not, not quite. I'm not suggesting cannibalism at all. It's perfectly le legitimate. There is even a cookbook published on various ways that you can prepare and dine upon this particular morsel, let's say. Oh, Chris. <laughs> okay, somebody says mushroom, but no, that cut cannot be. <laughs> that's not meat, that's not, man. That's not animal. Yeah. Although mushrooms are interesting because in the same way that we store energy in our cells using glycogen, a polymer of sugars, mushrooms, fungi do the same. They also store their energy as glycogen. So they're, they're sort of similar to us. So they're not totally on the wrong lines there. All right, let's go to Robbie in Germiston. <laughs> Hi. Hi, really, how are you? Fine, thank you. Fine, thanks. Chris, I've got a question for you. A, a couple of years ago, I used to suffer a, in the middle of the night, terribly with an itchy neck. And it went away, and last night it popped up, and it itches that I cannot sleep, but it, it actually kills me that I put deep heat on it, rub it in and let it burn, and then leave it, and it takes me hours to get to sleep because I just can't stop scratching my neck. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. It, it sounds like an acute dermatitis or a sort of eczema. A dermatologist might be a good person to go and see, but usually these things happen because of contact with clothing, cl contact with some kind of washing powder or soap, or some other irritant has got onto the skin. The fact that it's so localised to that bit of your body makes me think, well, have you been doing a certain job where something's gone down your neck and got against your skin and irritated the skin? Have you been wearing a certain bit of clothing or a certain uniform or something or you've bought a new expensive shirt that you've starched the collar to look very smart and has that rubbed your neck and has that allowed some irritants to get in um i would definitely go and see somebody because if it's that itchy then it sounds like uh, some kind of steroid ointment so some um, 
hydrocortisone or something might be a bit better for you than shoving deep heat on, um, which day after day may actually be something you're allergic to and it may actually be making the problem worse because some people paradoxically find that some of the creams that they put on to make things like eczema and, and acute dermatitis better contain Excellent. things they are themselves allergic to. Mm. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You put it on, it gives you relief in the short term, but then makes the problem worse. Mm, good luck to you, Robbie. It sounds dreadful. Now, Chris, I've got so many SMSing, SMSs suggesting <laughs> oh, that. I'm sorry. So, no, 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 so what I'm going to do is take Sandy because she's suggesting what many people are SMSing about. I just never the guts to say it because it sounds yucky. Sandy in Randberg, what is it? Hi, I know it's revolting, but I think it's placenta. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, this is the one example of a fish that no animal has suffered. Basically, you're eating a bit of your baby, um, but it's perfectly legitimate to do so, and some cultures do eat their placenta, and many animals do, because it's very rich in iron, and when a mother has a baby, she often loses some blood. <sighs> the placenta is full of blood. Um, the blood in the placenta is a mixture of the mother's blood from where the placenta plugged into the wall of the uterus and the baby's blood, which gets pumped through the blood vessels in the placenta. Blood is very rich in iron, haemoglobin, and as a result, it's an excellent way to top up your iron stores if you have had a traumatic delivery or you have lost blood. And, and obviously, when you've made a baby, you've given the baby many of your own nutrients. And it's mm. a way of getting some of them back, which is why many animals do it, but some humans do too. And the only animal to have suffered in producing that <laughs> placenta really was you. Yeah. So you're therefore quite legitimately able to eat it if you want to. Sandy, you are right. And so are many of you in this SMA. Chris, <laughs> I cannot tell you the number of SMSs that said placenta. <laughs> I just didn't want to even look at it. I thought oh, if I brilliant. said it, it was just going to make me sick. But there we go. Sandy and many others have guessed the placenta. Ew, I don't feel like this cereal anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll speak to you next week, Chris. Thanks, really. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>